I'm the kind of girl who is a glass half empty kind of person. Over the years, I've tried to shake it off, but my default is, has always been glass half empty, doom and gloom. Now, I've been really blessed because I'm married to a guy who's the eternal optimist. And so if my glass is half empty, his is running over. He has got my half, and he's probably got some of yours too. <laughs> but when it comes to the things of the Spirit, when it comes to the spiritual landscape of our nations, my glass is not half empty. Absolutely not. My glass runs over because I have no problem in seeing and believing and knowing with my spiritual eyes that a change is going to happen. A conversion of the spirit that will burst forth all across our nations. You know, there is a call on us as a movement to shape and reshape the nation and the nations. That even when the odds are heavily stacked against us, even when our surroundings look bleak and impossible, when um, things just feel like they're too much, it doesn't change our call. It doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change our mandate. It doesn't stop us. Where instead, we put on our spiritual eyes and night goggles, if you like, to actually see what is there. Because without them, the darkness can so easily swallow up what is only visible in the spiritual. And you might think that the call on your life is to lead worship, or to be in the band, or play the guitar, or sing, or play the keyboard, but your call is far greater than that. You might not feel it, you might not think it, you might not even currently believe it, but that doesn't change who you are. You see, you are called to be change makers. We were created to be people who bring about change, to be men and women who change our nations. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, that is what we've been created to do. And what I believe the Lord is saying to us tonight is see what I'm doing in the spiritual. Be deliberate in looking. Put your spiritual eyes on because worship is what's going to crack open hearts. Worship is what is going to light the way in the darkness of lives. You see, if you don't already know, the Lord wants you to know that you are more than the sum of your parts. You are far more than that. The offering that you bring to him is so much more than you know. So much more. You're not just a worshipper. You're not just a worship leader. You're not just a musician or a songwriter or a singer. You are a gatekeeper for the kingdom. Your gifts your talents, your passion. It's not just for your local church. It isn't just for our movement, but it's for the nations. It's for the nations. You see, what you bring in worship is for this land. It's for this entire land. And the call that has gone out to us is look up, expand your horizons. Expand your hearts, increase your vision, and allow the Spirit of God to rise up. You see, your worship individually, our worship 
collectively. It's for our nations. And it is as needed as heavy rain after years and years of drought. It is fuel for the fire. It's living water for parched mouths and dried and locked down souls. It's the propeller that opens hearts, locked doors, sealed and guarded entrances. Worship is not only our prize and our jewel, but it's our weapon and our cry over our land. Just as it was for the priests when they stood in the river for Joshua. Just as Moses, as he stretched out his hand to part the sea. Just as Gideon with his men blowing the trumpets, defeating the Midianites. We are called to do the same. As we worship, strongholds break, atmospheres shift, the supernatural things of the spirit become visible. The worship that we bring, the worship that you carry, it has an exponential effect over lives, over towns, over cities, over the nations. You see, you were made to stand in the rivers. You were created so that fortress walls would have absolutely no option but to fall. As you worship, you are called to go out into the middle of the sea and see it part and freedom and healing and wholeness found. Don't hide who you are. Don't suppress who God has created you to be. Don't let the passion die within you. Don't water it down. Don't conform who God has made you to be. Because worship is your battle cry. It's your weapon for every stronghold, every boundary line, every dark place. And God's put it in you. (sighs) Sorry. channel. You're a conduit. You're a mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. You are a messenger of Jesus to the world. And through the work of the Holy Spirit who's in you, you bring heaven to earth and you show earth a taste of heaven. You see, you are the gatekeepers that fling wide heaven's gates and invite a dying nation to come. Come taste. Come see, come and experience this. You are the gatekeepers who usher in the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. You are the gatekeepers who fight the powers of darkness, the principalities of the air. You are the gatekeepers for the kingdom. And tonight, I want us to look at another gatekeeper. A man that in the midst of a desolate landscape, when a whole nation had rebelled and turned their back on God. This man, he shows against all the odds when everything is stacked against him, the incredible power of our living God. Because he could see what no one else could see. Elijah, the prophet, he was a gatekeeper. He was a conduit of a person that brought a tiny bit of heaven to earth. You see, he knew what he was made for. And he stood in obedience to the call of God that was on his life. And because he stood in that calling, he was prepared to do and say and go whatever the Lord asked of him. You see, he made himself readily available. And because he did, the Lord, he used him as a mouthpiece to the nations. 
And so we are going to read together. We're going to dip in and out of 1 Kings tonight. And we are going to read together. We're going to start 1 Kings chapter 17. And we are going to read verse 1. I'll read it out. But if you have a Bible, why don't you swipe to it? Or even if you... <laughs> I'll probably be the only one with a hard copy. Oh, no, there's people with it. That's good. I always feel really old in my church because I'm like the only one. Okay. Brilliant. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. So at this crucial time of Judah and Israel, suddenly Elijah, he appears on the scene. And Elijah is confronting Ahab. Now, Ahab is a very powerful king. And he's probably one of the worst rulers that Israel has ever had. And he's married to this woman called Jezebel, and she is just as evil. And she's got a particular hatred for God's people. She absolutely hates God's people, and she wants to stamp out the worship of God. And because Ahab, he's married to this pagan woman, he has devoted himself to the worship of these false gods. And he worshipped this god called Baal. And he built a temple in honour of this god. And ironically, King David, you know, he, he rid the land of these false gods and idols only to find Ahab. He's resurrected them on a much larger scale than ever before. You see, Ahab was a man who abused his responsibility as Israel's king. And he led God's people into idolatry. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, Ahab, who did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That's a pretty atrocious sentence, isn't it? You see, those who worship Baal, they believe that he was a God that brought about the rains and he brought about bountiful harvests. And here's Elijah, and he's walking into this presence of this Baal-worshipping king, and he's declaring, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, just imagine Ahab for a moment. You know, he's going about his business and then suddenly in walks this obscure prophet in his face, making this extreme declaration. And as he's making it, I like to picture things. I've got quite a vivid imagination. And I like to picture kind of Ahab going, as, as Elijah's speaking to him, like, well, I've got a huge military defense and, you know, I know I'm going to be protected. What? Drought? You said drought? Oh, oh, well, my army would be rendered absolutely useless against the drought. They would be no good whatsoever. Let's pick up the story again. Verses from verse 2 onwards, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan, you would drink from the brook, and I've instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. 
So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So Elijah had announced to this king in absolutely no uncertain terms that a drought was coming. And now his life was in danger. And so the Lord, he took him to this place called the Kerith Ravine. It says, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook and I've instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. Point number one, God gets to decide when it's a season of prominence or of the hidden place. See, Elijah's escape to the Kerith Ravine was much, much more than just protect for his own protection. You see, God led Elijah to that place. He led him to that place of isolation and cutting off because he wanted him to be completely dependent on him. And the name Kerith means a cutting off or a separation. And God gets to decide when he takes us to that place that place of the kerith, of cutting away and of cutting off. And it's in this season of drought that Elijah, he's really got to trust the Lord, that the Lord is going to keep this brook flowing. And also he's got to trust and really accept that his food is going to be delivered to him in quite an unusual way. (laughs) But ravens are going to come and they're going to feed him. And notice what God says to Elijah in verse 4. I have instructed the ravens to supply you with food there. You see, God promised that the ravens would feed Elijah as he stayed at Kerith. Now, theoretically, of course, the ravens, they could feed Elijah wherever Elijah was. But God commanded that it be here at Kerith. Maybe God knew that Elijah wouldn't have wanted to stay in that place. Maybe he knew that Elijah would want to be somewhere completely different, doing something completely different. And that's why God just added in this little word, there, there. You see, he wanted Elijah there. He wanted him there in that hidden place. And he would provide for him there. And so often when we find ourselves in these seasons of our own Kerith ravines, when we experience the literal cutting off and unraveling of our lives, the season of the hidden place is is not something we want to embrace, is it? It's, It's more often than not a place that we want to run from, not to. And as I look back over my own life this far, I can see how these Kerith Ravine moments, these seasons of hiddenness in my life, have utterly challenged and tested my faith. But also these seasons have profoundly shaped my life. When I was two and a half, I was diagnosed with a life-threatening kidney disease. And I spent long, long periods of time in hospital huge chunks of time until I was 12 when I was told by my consultants that everything was well and they discharged me and they said, "Uh, we'll never see you again, you're fine. 
And then when I was 15 and a half, I was in the middle of taking my mock GCSEs and I relapsed. And because of the condition, my illness, I was on steroids and I retained an awful lot of water. In fact, I retained three times my body weight in water. And so you couldn't see the bridge of my nose. I was so puffy. And my teenage friends, they didn't know what to do. They couldn't cope. And so they just stopped turning up. They stopped coming round. And I was left in this place of complete isolation and devastation. I was physically and emotionally in a terrible place. To being newly married and then being diagnosed with having acute depression. And I had horrendous suicidal thoughts. And throughout these incredibly painful seasons of my life, bit by bit and little by little, the Lord, he started to reveal himself to me. He, he started to show me from a wee girl to a broken teenager to a deeply depressed woman that he was always with me. He was always with me. You see, he never left me. He never walked away from me. He provided for me there, there in that place. In the hospital rooms, time and time again, he would bring me back from the brink. Through the pain of isolation and loss, the Lord said to me, there are areas in your life I want. Hand them to me. And I was able to give him my pain and my desolation. And he came into that and he brought healing and wholeness to me, to being at the bottom of a really large, slimy pit, my pit of depression. And I saw the old me walking around on top, going about her daily business. And I remember thinking, I wonder how I'm ever going to get out of this pit and be that girl again. And then Jesus. Jesus came. He came and he got down into that awful, awful pit with me. He met me where I was. And bit by bit, he helped me to climb out of that pit. And I remember he gave me a picture. And it was a picture of Jesus standing next to me in the pit. And then Jesus, he bent down like that. And I realized he was bending down so I could stand on his back. So I could climb out of that pit. I never did become that girl that I was so desperate to be when I was at the bottom of that pit. But instead, because of God's great love and kindness to me, he made me a completely different girl. I discovered recently that there is an incredibly beautiful and lavish Japanese technique for repairing broken ceramics. And artisans... They use varnish and gold pigment to put shattered vessels back together again. And it's a tradition that is known as kintsugi, which means golden seams or golden repair. And you see, it's right there. It's right there in the hidden place, in the place that we so often resist, in the place that we want to run from, that Jesus comes and he meets us there. 
And it's these hidden places, these hidden seasons of our lives that are woven through us. Like gold seams, precious gold, like Kintsuki. So Elijah, he stayed at the Kerith ravine until the brook dried up. And then the word of the Lord came to him and the Lord said, I want you to go to Zarephath where a widow will take care of you and look after you. So that's exactly what Elijah did. And then about three years later, the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. And he said, Elijah, it's time to confront Ahab. And meanwhile, Ahab, he's getting pretty cheesed off with the drought. And he sends Obadiah. Obadiah is his palace administrator. And he's a devout follower of the Lord's. And he says, Obadiah, I want you to go and try and find some living grass. So my horses and my mules can eat. So Obadiah goes off to try and find this grass. And he bumps into Elijah. And he's like, oh, wow. Hey, how are you doing? Ahab wants a word with you. <laughs> and so Elijah's like, okay, well, tell him I'm here. And Obadiah's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? If I tell him you're here, I know what's going to happen. The spirit of the Lord is going to whisk you away and Ahab's going to come here, find you're not here and he's going to kill me, not on your nelly. And uh, Elijah says, no, 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 I promise you, I'm going to stay put. So Obadiah goes off and he finds Ahab and Ahab comes running to him. And Ahab says to him, so you're the one that's been making all this trouble around here, are you? And uh, Elijah's like, no, you're the troublemaker. You are the one. You forgot about God's commandments. You completely rejected God and you started worshipping Baal. You are the fool. So we're going to pick up the story and we're in uh, chapter 18 now, uh, verse 19. So this is what Elijah says. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people, they said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely, 
he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thoughts or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as, as there was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so we see that Elijah, he gives the prophets of Baal every potential advantage. He says, well, look, you pick the balls. You pick which one you want to sacrifice and you choose which one I should sacrifice. You know, Baal, he is the God of the Lord and he's the God of Lord and Lord of the weather and the lightning, of, of the sky, of fire. So if Baal was real, then he would have absolutely no problem sending fire from heaven. Yet all that praying, all that shouting, all that dancing, it made absolutely no difference because it was directed to the wrong God, not to the real one. Verse 29, midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. And now it's Elijah's turn. Elijah's turn. So, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. You see, what Elijah needed and what we need is the same thing. Elijah needed fire and we need fire. We need fire. We need fire all across our land. We need fire, the spirit of God to send fire, the manifestation of God's presence and power. But even though Elijah, he needed fire, I love, I absolutely love what he does before anything else. Before calling on God to send his power, before doing the same as the prophets of Baal and asking God to respond by sending fire, he does this. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Point number two, repair and rebuild the altar. Someone in the past had once built an altar to the God of Israel on this mountaintop. But it had been forgotten. It had been neglected. It had broken down until Elijah comes along. And Elijah, Elijah, he repairs and rebuilds the altar of the Lord. 
And you see through the rebuilding of the altar, he is demonstrating his complete and utter dependence on the Lord. Katie McCown says this, rebuilding never begins with what we can do for God. It always begins with what he's already done for us. The altar that Elijah was rebuilding, it had once stood as a visible sign of the reality of the true and living God. It had testified that people once worshipped him as the God most high. And just as Elijah, he repaired the altar. He repaired the altar that had been torn down. The Lord, I believe, is asking you to repair and rebuild the altar of worship across our land. Where not less than maybe 60 odd years ago, there would have been many, many altars of the Lord. Places of worship and praise, of devotion and intercession all across our land, from Cornwall to Scotland, from Wales to Ireland. So many of them have been torn down. So many of them have been neglected in favor of worshiping false gods and idols, like the God of self or the God of desire, of religion, of money, of career, of recreation. And just as Elijah, just as he stood on that mountaintop, surrounded, completely surrounded by opposition. He was rebuilding the altar of the Lord. And I believe that the Lord is calling us to do the same. Despite your surroundings, despite what you see, despite what you feel, despite how daunting the opposition appears to be, because you are the repairers and restorers of the altar of the Lord. That is who you are. That is why you're here. That is who you've been created to be because you prepare a meeting place between the physical and the spiritual. You have been given an incredibly beautiful, life-transforming gift of being able to walk people into the very, very presence of the kingdom, of the throne room of Jesus Christ. Repair the altar of your schools. Repair the altar in your workplaces, in your towns, in your cities, in the dark places, in the places that have been long forgotten. And as you make a way, as you make him known, as you lift him up and glorify him, we see through Elijah that incredible and beautiful and powerful things happen. Verse 32, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two seeds of seed. He arranged the wood, he cut the bull into pieces, he laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water, it ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. You see, Elijah, he had completely stacked the cards against himself by soaking the sacrifice and the wood in all this water. They're in the middle of a three-year drought, people. Like, crazy. 
it's crazy. And here is Elijah, and he's emptying jar after jar after jar of water all over the sacrifice, all over the wood. Not once, not twice, but three times. These buckets of water he poured out over the altar. It's pretty crazy if you think about it. And actually, to the people around him, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But do you know what? Elijah, he is full of faith. He is full of faith. He is prepared to pour four whole precious and highly valuable jars of water three times over and over and over again so that he can display the power of God to all who are watching. Point number three, pour yourself out again. As I've been preparing for this talk and as I've been wrestling with these scriptures, I felt that the Lord say to me that we may not need to, we don't have to soak any wood in water or ball pieces in water. And we are not in the middle of a severe physical drought. But the demonstration of this precious and expensive water that Elijah, he allowed to freely flow it's symbolic, and it's symbolic of your time. It's symbolic of your energy. It's symbolic of your investment. The pouring out of the water was symbolic, and it's symbolic for all the times that you have sacrificed, all the times that you have poured yourself out, all the times that you have given in order to serve the Lord. Over and over and over again. It's symbolic of all the times, the week after weeks, and the months after months, and the years after years, that you have in faith, you have poured yourself out, your time, your resources, your gifting, through the good times, through the bad times, and through the positively painful times. Friends, this is not waste. This is not foolishness. It is sacrifice. It is beautiful. It is trust. It is obedience. It is commitment. This is you pouring yourself out onto your king and onto your Lord. And you know what he says? He says, I love it. I love it. I love it. And you know what he also says? Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. Even when you don't feel like it. Even when you feel like you've got nothing else to bring. Even when it's painful. Even when it hurts. Even when you feel outnumbered. Do it again. Because in the doing again we see, point number four, last point, we see fire. Fire. Let's read verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are Lord. 
are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The fire of the Lord fell. And the people, they had no other choice. All they could do to respond was to lie out on their faces and cry out, the Lord, he is God. He is God. Friends, isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what we cry for? Isn't that what we pray and intercede for? That the Lord would do what our eyes cannot yet currently see? That he would do something so vast, so incredible, so huge, so miraculous, that people would be left in absolutely no doubt that the Lord, he is God. He is God. You see, our God did what Baal, the supposed Lord of the sky and weather, failed to do. You see, our God produced lightning from a sky without clouds. Pretty awesome, eh? And the people, the people, they could only do one thing. They lay down and they worshipped the Lord. They cried out to God. And friends, I want you to remember this. I want you to hold fast to this. I want you to sink it deep into your heart and into your mind for when you are up against it. For when you are opposed, for when you feel completely vulnerable and out on a limb and outnumbered and alone, remember this. Yes, Baal, he had all the outward advantages. But Elijah, he saw beyond that. He saw beyond that. He saw something else. You see, as he stood in his calling, as he stood in the commands of the Lord, as he stood positioned in all that the Lord had asked him to do, the manifestation of the power and the Spirit of God came and it was displayed for all to see so that the people would know that our God, our God, he answers with fire. 